This week from the Bronx to Jaguar with GT Joey. JECpodcast.com Hello, welcome to another Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. Wayne Scott with you. I hope you're keeping well. On the week that marks the 120th birthday of Jaguar founder Sir William Lyons. Yes, born the 4th of September, 1901. He would have been 120 this year, of course. He will forever be remembered as Mr. Jaguar. Of course, it didn't start out that way. It started out as Swallow Sidecars with his best mate from round the corner in Blackpool, Sir William Wormsley, who was the co-founder of the Swallow Sidecar Company in 1922. They met when Sir William Lyons, of course he wasn't a sir then, uh, met William Wormsley with a very snazzy sidecar that he'd built himself and decided he'd want to buy one from him. And there started the legend that became Jaguar. Of course, they were Swallow Sidecars, later SS. And then after the Second World War, the Jaguar name was adopted full time. It had been applied to the SS 100 that came out just before the war. And so began the run of very special cars that we all love today. And when in 1931, the SS1 was originally launched and the company name changed to SS Cars Limited in 1933. Those cars that were running then would have been running on a very, very, very different type of fuel to the type of petrol we take out of the pumps and put into our cars these days. It has been a process of evolution in the motor car on how we fuel and continue to keep combustion engines running, and that latest evolution took place this month when on the 1st of september e10 became of course the standard fuel across the uk now this has very real implications for all of us who drive historic vehicles all post 2011 jaguars and the vast majority most jaguars from 1993 onwards are perfectly fine with e10 that is petrol that has up to 10 percent by volume of ethanol but for older jaguars it does cause something of a problem. There's the problem of enleanment. There's the fact that ethanol is hygroscopic, so it holds onto water, keeps water in fuel tanks, and rusts them out. Then, of course, you've got the problems where ethanol can eat through some of those old fuel lines and gaskets. Luckily, thanks to the lobbying that the Jaguar Enthusiast Club applied via the FBHVC, E5, protection grade as we're now calling it, super unleaded to you and me, is going to be available for the next five years in most petrol stations. It's protected by law for the next five years to make sure that you and I all have petrol that's safe for our historic Jaguars. Of course, ultimately, we will have to upgrade our fuel systems, including fuel tanks, fuel lines, carburetor components, gaskets and diaphragms in fuel pumps and in regulators. That will come in time, but for now, just continue to enjoy your Jaguars. Fill up with the right fuel. If you fill up with E10, don't panic. Use it up. Don't store your car with E10 in it and use E5 as soon as you can. And in particular, make sure your fuel lines, your fuel system from beginning to end, from tank through to cylinder head, everything is well maintained and kept in good order because ethanol will find any weakness if you happen to fill up with E10 because you can't find anything else. If you need any more information, if you need any more help, if you need some more detail on the effects on your Jaguar, There is information on the JEC website at jec.org.uk or, of course, via the Federation site 
at fbhvc.co.uk forward slash fuel and on there you'll find all the information you need to find safe materials for fuel hoses and to find out what effects the ethanol in fuel might have on your Jaguar. The main thing is not to panic, use the right fuel and continue to enjoy our Jaguars. Now Tom Robinson is away in Spain at the moment having a much needed rest after his rather dramatic race up at Cadwell Park. He's not going to be away for long though because there is lots to do on the car before the final round at Snetterton. We'll find out more from Tom on next week's podcast but he's not with us this week but before our main interview this week which is a great fun interview with GT Joey all the way from Long Island in the US state of New York. Before all of that, of course, Richard West's Hall of Fame next. And a reminder that Castle Coombe, our track day booked for the 5th of October, ends its booking very soon. So make sure you don't miss out on your place on track on the 5th of October. If you don't want to join us on track, don't forget, of course, we are running a little car show there and spectating is free. So you can come and join us anyway. All the details you need are on jec.org.uk forward slash events. Just look for Castle Coombe listed under the 5th of October and make sure you join us. It's the last proper opportunity for a good weather track day before winter sets in. That is October the 5th. Get yourself booked on now. Motorsport Heroes with Richard West's Hall of Fame. Well, many racing drivers make their way into the world of motorsport uh, through the same route. Normally, they start in karting and they make their way up through the ranks. But occasionally, a driver comes along who has a very different route into motorsport. And he is another one of our Jaguar F1 drivers as well. We're talking about Pedro de la Rosa this week, as someone that you have actually worked with uh, at quite some length, Richard. Yeah, I have indeed. Pedro Martinez de la Rosa, to actually give you his full name. Um, a really, really super guy. He was born on 24th February back in 1971. And um, he actually, uh, you and I were talking about this the other day when we, we put his name forward. He actually started, rather than going through the karting school and all the other things, he actually started his racing career with radio-controlled cars. And I shouldn't actually laugh because they're 1.8 scale off-road cars in which he, you know, was obviously very, very skilled. And that led him into wanting to get into the the real racing i'm sure i'll upset radio control people by saying that but actually actually sitting in a racing car and really enjoying himself so yeah remarkable guy he um competed in 107 grand prix in total he drove for arrows where i knew him extremely well when he was driving alongside um tora takagi and of course while we're talking about him today he drove for the jaguar team he also drove for mclaren for sauber and the much maligned HRT team that, um, that, that you know, faded away uh, towards the end of the, end of the noughties. But um, he made his Formula 1 debut on the 7th of March back in 1999, and he's one of the rare drivers who actually scored a point on his very first time out. So, yeah, lots to talk about with, uh, with Pedro. So how did he make that transition from radio-controlled cars, which I can kind of understand because actually you do need some really quick reactions at that level to control those cars. So already he's got the makings of a very good single-seater driver. But where, how was the journey up to Formula 1? What were the transitions? Well, it was twofold, really, because, you know, being born sort of relative, <laughs> relative youngster still, being born in the 70s as he was growing up and enjoying his radio control, he was also watching um, television and he was seeing some fantastic battles with some of the stars we've talked about before. Um, 
he actually became the first multiple European radio-controlled uh, champion. But of course, once he'd been runner-up in that, it was only after he started karting in Spain back in uh, 88 when he was 17. Uh, he then left karting, joined the Spanish Formula for, you know, and became champion in 1989 before his professional career kicked off in 1990 where he raced in Spanish Formula Ford and became champion. Um, he, he dabbled, well, dabbled, that's very unfair to him. He raced very well in the British Formula Ford, got two podiums, um, and he also got into Formula Renault. And uh, in 1992, he became a European and British Formula Renault champion. And um, from there on in, he was a name that people started to talk about. And on his day, he was an extremely quick driver. Well, he was born not far from the Barcelona circuit, I understand. So I guess he had a good mm. grounding in Formula One. One of the great uh, Grand Prix rounds is Barcelona. So, um, mm. I mean, you know, we we had Eddie Irving on the uh, podcast last week and we were inducting him into our Hall of Fame. And they were teammates at Jaguar from 2001 onwards, weren't they? They were, but there was some interesting stuff before that. I mean, uh, he went out and raced um, in Macau. Um, he got into Japanese Formula Three, uh, Formula Three, not three thousand, excuse me. Um, and of course, he also raced in the All Japan GT Championship and in Formula Nippon alongside uh, Michael Crum. It was Arrows that gave him his break uh, in '98. He was testing for Eddie Jordan's team, um, but shortly after that, Tom spotted him. Uh, there he is again, Mr. Walkinshaw, and um, he he joined the Arrows team and raced for Arrows in 1999 and 2000. And did a pretty good job, but it was, as you rightfully say, a Jaguar driver. He had two uh, years, which is why, really, I thought it would be a good idea, um, as did you, that we bring him in this week, because he raced alongside Eddie Irvine, who we spoke about last week. Um, but it was a strange one, because towards the end of the 2002 season, we talked recently about, you know, why did the Jaguar F1 team not quite make it? He was actually, um, he was pensioned off towards the end of the um, 2002 season really? um, because it was actually set to expire right the way through into 2003, but it didn't happen. And he was replaced at Jaguar for a short period by Antonio Pizziona. Um It was almost parting of a uh, good fortune for him because uh, very shortly after that, he, he was managed very successfully in his latter career by Julian Jacobi, a man who was very well known for managing the likes of Ayrton Senna, Dario Franchetti, Alain Prost. Um, and he became a test driver um, for the McLaren team. And uh, in the uh, he raced at the 2005 Bahrain race when Montoya had damaged his shoulder. And it was announced shortly after that, in, in 2006, that he would take over the seat with immediate effect uh, following uh, Juan Pablo's decision to go and race in the American NASCAR series. So quite clearly, um, there he was, you know, and he scored his... First and only ever Formula One podium. He finished second behind Jensen Button at the Hungarian Grand Prix in 2006. Um, he combined testing in 2005. He also did a lot of television broadcasting at that time in his native Spain. And for a while, he was linked with David Richards, now the head of the Motorsport UK organisation. David's Pro Drive organisation was looking seriously at Formula One. There were some names that he would be there. Um, but it never came to be, and uh, therefore he spent a considerable time sat in a McLaren as a very, very successful test driver for them. Mm, I remember his McLaren days very well, and uh, I also remember the move to Sauber as well, which was something of a surprise at the time, I seem to recall. And, and I think this speaks volumes about his maturity and his level-headedness. 
um, just before the Australian Grand Prix, he was elected chairman of the Grand Prix Drivers Association, the GPDA. Mm. Um, he was actually the third candidate for um, GPA directors, both Weber and Fernando Alonso. And uh, Ralph Schumacher was stepping out of his role at that time. And Pedro stepped into that very important role, which has, has done and continues to do a great deal for the safety of drivers. So, yes, he um, spent some time uh, for the resurrected Sauber team. He he raced alongside, uh, I think it was Kobayashi, I think he raced alongside. And he impressed Toyota massively. Um, he did a very good job. He, he, he never quite got to that sort of higher echelon that you would expect, but he was there. He was very reliable. He was an exceptionally good PR man as well. He, he was very, very good with the team sponsors right the way through his career. And he was liked and greatly respected by absolutely everybody, for sure. And a brand ambassador for our partners here at the JEC, Pirelli as well, I seem to recall. Yes, very much so. In fact, he, I, I last saw him um, at the Formula E race uh, a couple of years ago in uh, New York when he'd taken over a role there with the Formula E team known as Tachita. And, uh, but we mustn't forget, of course, that he was also a test driver on the simulators alongside Ferrari with Felipe Massa. Um, he raced again in Formula One. They signed him at HRT F1 on a two-year contract alongside uh, Naran Carthanean. But again, it wasn't a team that was really going to allow him to, to shine. And after Formula One, quite frankly, when he stepped back from that last role that he had at Ferrari in 2014, he took that decision to come up, become the sporting advisor of Tachita in Formula E. And uh, he now has a driving school and there's a lot there. And again, in his native Spain, he is a hugely popular figure and somebody who yet again has been through the through the Jaguar Formula One programme. Absolutely. I remember the HRT debut uh, way back where it must be 10 years ago now where they failed to qualify for the very first Grand Prix of the season it wasn't a brilliant start for them so yeah I can understand why uh, he ended up making the moves that he did towards the end of his career there but great to hear he is one of those that has stuck around motorsport and we'll always remember him of course for those superb drives that he delivered over those couple of years racing the Jaguar Formula 1 car and a worthy inductee for our Hall of Fame here on the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. You're listening to the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. To find out what events you can get along to or to discover local club meets in your region, visit jec.org.uk. Well, on this week's Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast, I'm bringing together two brilliant things that we have on this podcast. Sometimes we have you, the regular listeners. Sometimes we have legends from the worldwide Jaguar community. This week, we have both because I am joined by the man who is known to his friends as GT Joey. Welcome him to the podcast. Hi to GT Joey. Welcome along. Wayne, what a pleasure to be on. I mean... Yeah, I thought I would have been on a little sooner after our relationship over the last 30 years, but it's great to be on, my friend. There's so much to talk about. There's two stories I want to tell you at the end. I'm driving my E-Type a 1,000 miles every month for the 60th anniversary. 
Well, we had to warm up to you, you see. Everyone else up to this moment has been warming up for you. and uh, I, I get knew... very nervous. I've <laughs> never done this before. I get very nervous. <laughs> I can tell. I can absolutely tell. There's suddenly a lack of confidence coming across here. We'll have to sort that out. Yeah. <laughs> I'm Italian, you know, from New York. You know. Well, let's, let's start from the very beginning. Um, you were born in the Bronx. Where are we talking to you now? Where have you come from? Tell us the story of Joey and your life. Where did it all begin? Born in the Bronx, New York, as you could tell by my Harvard accent. And I'm picking up the pace for the younger people in your audience. And uh, obviously, we came from nothing. And over the years, I created a business insurance company. It worked out really good. And by the age of 54, only a year ago, I was completely bored out. Uh, not much schooling, uh, not much uh, further education. and uh, But my love for cars, and uh, especially Jags and all British cars, Aston Martin as well, but mostly Jaguars, uh, has been my passion since a kid. And to be honest with you, it's been a great ride. My friends over all these years, whether it's Michael Quinn, Philip Porter, Norman Dewis, I would have never known these guys. I was a kid from the Bronx. And it just became a passion and fun. But then you got to get involved like you're getting involved now. And that's really, really a big part of it. You know, you're a younger guy. And you're taking over this role for the JEC. I'm a lifetime member. And it's great to see. And that's what we have to see. I'm seeing a lot of younger women in our club get involved, which is great. And uh, now, you know, I'm 55. I'm not the oldest guy out there. But, uh, you know, we're becoming the older guys. And we're seeing new people come in. And it's just been fun. It's just been really fun. It's a great thing. And I'm always amazed by how people in from all walks of life and from all parts of the world get this passion for Jaguar, for British cars in general. Um, we can take it for granted here in the UK that just everyone loves classic British cars. But how does an Italian from the Bronx get so passionate to the point where he devotes his life to Jaguars and other British marks? What was the point in your life where you discovered these cars and got so excited about them? If you're in my age group, my friend, now we know each other a long time, at least 10 minutes on the phone, okay? When I was a kid in the 60s, there was a show called Speed Racer. It was a cartoon. And at the end of that cartoon, it was so cool. Now, guys like Richard West, he's my age, he'll understand and all that stuff, okay? So you used to watch this cartoon, Speed Racer, used to race this car around, blah, blah, blah. I didn't care about any of that stuff. When the credits rolled at the end of the show, now I'm a kid in the 60s, okay? They'd roll the credits and you'd see the cars go by from the beginning of time. So you'd see a horse and carriage when the credits go by. Then you'd see a steam car. Then you'd see like a Model T, a Model A in America, blah, blah, blah. Then it'd be some kind of 50s car. And then right before the credits end and the last car would be a spaceship for the future, you see this red E-type convertible go by. And I'm like, oh, my God. Listen to me. That's going to be the car one day. And now, obviously... We were taking trains, subways, and buses in the Bronx. There was no such thing as a British car. But eventually, as you worked your way up, that was one of my ultimate goals. And now uh, my collection, I've got my Mark II. My wife and I drive maybe two, three times a week. I drive my E-Type everywhere. I just got rid of my XF, uh, well, I call it shooting brake, old school. The sport brake, that was great. My wife's got the the F-Type, uh, what is it, the F-Pace. SUV and we just keep going it just changes with styles a little bit but that's how it started and then you know as I grew and things got better 
I was able to afford these things. But we'll get into that a little bit later with another crazy story. When I got brand new X300, and it's just going to be another story. What else you got? Well, I'm interested to know about that moment where you bought your first Jaguar. And, you know, you've already outlined the fact that you're in a successful business. Uh, you've made you've made a good life for yourself. And I wonder whether the driving force behind that was actually pursuing this passion of owning the car of your dreams. And, and at what point did you feel like you'd made that? Well... I think you hit on something. Look, there's a couple of things that are involved. First is health. You know, we see what's going on in this world today. And, uh, you know, we take the old times for granted, like my parents, World War II and all that. Everybody came over to the States with nothing. You know, so A, you're appreciative of modern life, electricity, and water from where we came from. And then you move on and you try and better yourself. But it had to be, I was... Married a couple of years, you know, kids, but they're all small. I'm in my 30s, building up the business, and the business was starting to roll. I get a call from a local Jaguar dealership because my dad, when he started making some money, bought an XJ6 in the late 70s before, you know, everything got a little better. Then in the 80s, and then uh, finally in the 90s, when I had my business, I got the call from the same uh, seller from the dealer. And he goes, look, Joe, we got a, which you like. I got this XJ40. It's a 93. It's a demo model. So, you know, in the States, they get a little crazy. They have beliefers. They have to have pinstripes. They got to put their initials. They got to put all this stuff. It gets very gaudy. Okay. I don't like that. So he had a, a flat. It was just black on black. No leaper, no side trim, no nothing. He goes, look, Joe, in the States, this doesn't really sell. But it's a demo car, and you like it because you're a purist. So I got this XJ40, it was a 93. Now remember in the States, everybody wanted Series 3, Series 3, because of the looks and all the other stuff. But the XJ40, no matter what anybody says, it was a big jump forward, mechanically, build quality, you know, materials and all. You know, it had its issues with the electronics and all that, but it was just a leap ahead, okay? So I had that car for two years. How I was gonna pay $380 a month with two kids at home, you know, a mortgage and a business and all the rest was a miracle, right? So that's what started it all. And then two years go by. I said, you know, I'm going to buy this car at the end of the lease. Lease is up and here comes the commercial on TV with added James at last. At that point, I knew Michael Dale and all these other guys. Look, Joe, the new XJ is coming out. You got to go for this thing. And I go, well, listen to me, you know, I don't know if it's retro I don't know what they're trying to prove, but I go check it out. Build quality went through the roof. Okay, not knocking the XJ40. They put the polyurethane bumpers and everything else. And you're like, oh, my God. I bought that car. I had four years on that car. Four years, okay? I did 138,000 miles on that car. That car was equal to like a 1970s. You're a little younger, but you get it. A Mercedes diesel station wagon, okay? They would rock through the floor, those old Mercedes diesels, okay? But they would go three, four hundred thousand miles. That XJ, the, the X300 was bulletproof. And from that year, I probably had eight or nine other XJs, new, old, you know, F types, XK8s, had them all. But that's where it really took off. And then the original guys in our Jaguar Club of Long Island. Cut me off if I'm going too long. I am Italian. My hands are flying in the wind right now. 
about 2001, after all the tragedies, the older guys in our club, the XK120, 140, 150 club, Jaguar Club of Long Island, those guys are getting old. And it was time for a new president. So it took over right after all that tragedy. Okay. Took off. We went from 25 members to 300 members. Okay. In six months. How? Well, Jaguar had some lineup between Ford giving him the money to build quality products, you know, that are durable compared to Hyundai and everybody else. Uh, they had the S-Type, beautiful car. We got my mom. Then the X-Type little wagon, which she wanted eventually. A lot of the XJ, uh, X308s and all that stuff. And it was just a beautiful period. You had such a lineup. You had retro cars. You had new cars. And it was a great period, and the club took off. And then from there, I got involved with my buddies at Jaguar, and then the clubs worldwide, and then car shows like Goodwood and Amelia Island, and uh, Michael Quinn became a great friend, and Norman Dewis. And it just rolled on and on. It's just you can't get it out of your blood, my friend. It's just unique, you know? There's some things that changed when Ford took over, not as good as some of the other things. You know, you lost some of the... The friendships, you weren't at the dealership every two weeks or you didn't know the regional manager anymore. Those days were gone, but you didn't have to go in for service. So it's 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 just been a great, great run. And it's still one of the only distinctive cars out there. You know, they're going through their changes now. But uh, hopefully what I'm hearing, probably what you're hearing, you're closer. Uh, hopefully, you know, something big is coming out in three or four years. You know, I don't care if it's more money. I don't care if it's, you know, more bespoke. I get it. It's going to become a more exotic luxury car again. But put a little wood back in it, put a little bit more leather in it, and I think they could have a winner because that name is like Aston Martin. You just know that name, you know? Absolutely. Well, I've said it before on this podcast, that era of the late 90s, early 2000s, when Ford took over and, and as you say, brought out all these kind of retro models, but also uh, models that put Jaguar back on the map, made people notice them again. And the XK8 was key to that, of course, exactly 25 years ago. Can't believe it's that anniversary already of that amazing car. But um, I wonder what it was for you at that time. Obviously, Jaguar themselves riding on a crest of a wave, that had an impact on your club. Why was it important for you as someone who'd taken a Jaguar on a lease from a dealership to get involved with a club? On Long Island there. What did that give you? What was the motivation there? Well, to be honest with you, uh, the Widinger family, who were the East Coast original Jaguar dealership, the way Hornberg was on the West Coast, it was Huey that started in 38, 39. Then there was Jake, and then there was Jack. Jake was my father's age. So when we made money, my father made money, uh, you know, he went to a Jaguar instead of a Mercedes. And uh, it was like a family. And uh, when my mother had those old XJ6s in the 70s and 80s, which I think you're aware of, you know, they had dual tanks with dual switches. You know, my mom was the typical, I love her more than life. But she used to call up back in those days, you know, Jack was the owner. You called them up on the phone, not a cell phone. You went to a pay phone. Hey, the car stalled out. Uh, Amy, you were supposed to hit that button on the dash. You have another <laughs> tank full of gas. See, that was the common stuff, and they actually picked up the phone, unlike today. But, you know, so it became a family, you know? And then that family grew, then they had kids, and we all grew up together. 
And uh, it was just a great time. Then you had these guys from the 50s and 60s, and then these racing guys that were on the East Coast. And uh, it, it just grew. So that, that period, look, Ford gave them the infusion they needed. And it's funny. That's why I'm GT Joey, because I have four GTs and GT40s, and I was blessed with all that stuff. That, that's where the nickname comes. But when Ford took them over, really in that 90s period, which you had that great, great interview with John Egan, and a lot of businessmen just, they appreciate that guy so much for what he had to do. Okay, to keep Jaguar alive. All right. There's a lot more involved than what people see. But my friends at Ford, Joe, when we took over, you know, they had to come up with a game plan. You know, what are we going to keep? What are we going to sell? Now, when they first sat down with the board at the time and Bill Ford and all those guys, all friends, go, listen to me. You know, we were expecting four or five hundred pages of notes. What do you want us to do with Coventry? What do you want us to do at Newport Pagnell? You know, that's the Aston Martin plant. They had one line, get a match. Okay. That's a joke, you know, burn the place down because it was, that's how antiquated it was. And Paul Skillett wrote about this years and years ago. Look, in 1989, the luxury market completely changed. A company called Lexus that nobody knew. You bought a Lexus for $26,000. The Jaguar was always the bang for the bucket, say 35, depending on the options. And of course, the Mercedes was 50, 55,000. Okay. Lexus came in and blew away everybody. If Ford didn't come in and do what they did, letting Jaguar build a Jaguar, but giving them the materials, you know, and the electrics and the upgrades and just the system of building the cars, you know, they wouldn't be here today. So to, to shorten the story, I take over the club. I said, guys, let's really have fun with this. Let's bring in MG. Let's bring in Triumph. Let's bring in Rover. Let's bring in all these groups. Why? Because all of them died, and they're never coming back, and Jaguar was the stronghold. And then there was guys on the East Coast, like Mike Cook that you would know, Karen Miller, Mike Dale. Mike Dale was a sweetheart. I mean, this guy would come out to the shows. I don't know who would do that at Jaguar today. I'm not knocking it. I don't know those guys today. But these guys would literally come over and enjoy the show, stay for the weekend, like you're doing now at the JEC events. And it just ties everybody and becomes an event. It becomes a happening. It's not, I bought a car, now leave the dealership, and we'll see you in three years. It really becomes a family. So now we've got a family of 300 that turned into 600, and we have parties in the backyard. Some of us don't have Jags. Some can't even drive anymore. It doesn't matter. It's just, it's a fun family relationship. And one of my good friends, Michael Quinn, who you know, William Lyons' grandson, he came all the way to Carlisle, Pennsylvania for us two and a half, three years ago for a Jaguar event. Gary Bartlett, GW Bartlett Interiors, owns many Jags, GT40s. I mean, these guys don't have to show up. They've made their money. And it's just for the love of the car. And, you know, that's the way we're going to go. I told my wife, I don't know how we're going to do it in New York with the pollution controls, but somehow take the back and front window out of the E-type and just lower me in the ground, take out all the fluids and lower me down in the ground in that fixed head coupe, <laughs> you know? And then I'm set for a long, long time. Well, I'd be interested to get your your opinions on where the future of the classic car world is going and those challenges that you alluded to there on emissions and the rest of it. We're having... 
we're having big conversations here in the UK about that. But what you've importantly touched on, I think, there is the fact that the community comes out in America of Jaguars, I suppose, being a little bit quirky, a little bit different. And certainly if you go over there and you spot a Jaguar on the road, it really does stand out. And you notice them, even as a British person used to see them on the road every day, you really notice them on the road uh, when you're over in the States. And I've spent some time working there and it's something that I noticed myself doing, going, wow, look at that. And it stands out. What do you think public opinion outside of the club's is like for Jaguar? Uh, I, I think it's split in two, my friend. And, um, you know, we're having fun. And uh, once politics gets involved, you know, then it, then we go down a dark road. So leaving the politics on the side, look, there's two groups. Uh, there's the older group, and I'm just saying old. Let's say 50 and above, okay? They all get it. They grew up with it. Then you have a group under 50, and it's not on the line. But look, it, it, it's a different generation. If they're in their 20s and 30s, I don't know any of them, maybe one out of a million, that wants to adjust points, put in a condenser or anything like that. So, so you have to go with the times, okay? Uh, they appreciate the styles, but, but the way the whole country and world is going, look, you, you've got a younger generation. You're getting pushed now with the E5, then the E10. We've had E10 for 10, 15 years. Total destruction to early cars. You know, carbureted cars, open cars, cars that don't have fuel injection, okay? It goes through everything. It's junk. I mean, no matter what they say, it's junk, okay? But so you have environmentalists, young-wise. I don't know if they want to enjoy life like we enjoy life, okay? And the car is an enjoyable thing. But uh, you're starting to put together and form groups like the kid I call him from S&J, Julian, okay? You're starting to form committees and groups, which are great, which they're not doing in the United States. Hey, look, I, I think the last time you guys were discussing this, uh, just in, in the UK, uh, I think you to the economy, the classic car market was bringing something in like six to $8 billion. We're only five years, it was $3 billion. And, and you know those numbers, okay? Now you can obviously tell I'm a business guy from New York. All right. But like in the United States, they just go down the one road. We're killing everybody. We're killing the environment. We're killing everybody. We're killing our grandkids. And, and you know, they're just not looking at the big, big picture. We all want to live forever, but it's not happening. And, and, and there is, there has to be a little give and take. But, but you guys are at least balancing out from what we're seeing. You know, they're giving you options with E5 to E10. And, and then you're enjoying the old cars on the road. Here we're enjoying them, but there's a younger group that's, shall I say, a little angrier. And, and they just want to see things a certain way. And, and I think that should pass as they get older and want to hopefully enjoy life. We're starting to build committees here. Look, I, the, if the, the number in the UK is four to six billion of revenue, which that's all everybody else is seeing over there other than the car people. Ours has got to be, what, 30 to 50 billion in the United States with 300 million people. So we're starting to form committees like you guys are doing. Yes, young people do appreciate it. Do they have the patience to work on them, fix them, or do they have the disposable cash? Absolutely not. It's a different generation. They're behind the eight ball. But what we are seeing that I thought you brought up a couple of shows ago, XJ40s, an X-type where people, not laugh, 
But remember, they were calling them like the cheap car, not a real Jag. Now they're great classic cars. I always liked them. You're seeing those cars get three old ladies that passed away. $3,000, $5,000. It has style. It has pizzazz. It's zippy. It's got a little motor in it. Gets great gas mileage. Maybe you're a 5%, 10% to a brand, brand new car. And so you are seeing some people that, you know, want to be distinct from the crowd. And we're forgetting before Ford took over, that's really what Jaguar was. You know, it was it, it was a bespoke brand. It was I'm different than everybody. Then they try to get into the two, three, four hundred thousand units a year, which really wasn't their forte. And hopefully, we're trying to go back to what we were. You know, but you know, modern and all that. But that's my interpretation. The E5, at least you're going to get away with uh, that for a couple of years, I think. Then you're going to merge into the E10. And look, you got to be careful. You cannot leave that stuff over the winter in the car without running it. If you have submerged pumps like an XK8, you got to run the car, even though it's fuel injected, or it'll eat through the rubber seals and those things like there's no tomorrow, you know? So what uh, you got to watch. Here in the States now, we're getting optional. We have ethanols everywhere except for farm country. But, uh, you know, we pick up VP racing fuel or Shell even now, where you are, I think they're doing it. They'll deliver it to your house in one gallon and five gallons, and then you're set, you know. But that, that, that's what we see here. It's not being negative. It's a change. But instead of being drastic, you got to work together, not cut it off. Everything's done. I was in Italy two, three years ago before COVID, and they, they were going to go crazy with no old cars whatsoever. And I'm Italian. Everything is love and food and cars, okay? When you don't see an old Ferrari, an old Fiat on the streets, it's boring. When you see that car and somebody nice walk by, it just sets the tone that, my God, this is nice. This is relaxing. This is what I love. Mm. You understand? Mm. Well, a stark figure that... And I guess this is about education as much as anything else. I think uh, it's very easy when you're dealing with such a massive problem as climate change to start focusing on things that you can scapegoat because you can very easily pick them out of society because they actually don't affect you. Instead of talking about the real big issues like how long you leave your lights on at home and what wastage and, and, and what we're consuming in vast amounts, we can pick on a small sector of society that enjoy classic cars. So I think it's about educating people who don't understand who we are and what we do with figures like here in the UK, classic cars, historic vehicles, and that includes not just cars but bikes, lorries, old buses, everything else that falls under that umbrella – accounts for less than a quarter of 1%, 0.25% of the total mileage driven in the country in the course of a year. If you wiped out every single historic vehicle, it would make no difference. And that's, I think, educational pieces like that that we need to get across to new generations. And ultimately, if they see our cars as a way of separating themselves out from the crowd and for being different and for being involved in something better, then, you know, we stand a chance of survival there. You're absolutely right. And look, I, I had a lot of cars at one time, a lot of American cars too, and I started getting rid of that stuff because the E-Type, uh, you know, the, the Mark II even to a degree, probably the E-Type, the Ferrari, the Lusso, all these cars are true Picassos, okay? 
Somebody's going to want that car somewhere, e- even if there's no gasoline in the tank. OK, somebody's going to want to park that in their living room. And that's what we're really starting to see after COVID. We're seeing the guys my age, a little older, really, 60s, 70s. They've got money to burn. And, and they know that that chart of timeline is getting smaller. And you're seeing tremendous numbers all of a sudden to these old cars trying to preserve, especially like the E-types and stuff like that. My friends with D-types, that's another league. But look, like you said, there's going to be a little place for those. Uh, I was the first guy that pulled Jag when I saw the uh, Harry and Megan take off in the E-type electric. Other guys were screaming and yelling. I called them up. I said, wait a minute. I got an extra spare body. I'll go for it. And of course, it seemed to be like a little propaganda kind of thing. And then that faded away. And then I drove the I-Pace. I drove the I-Pace. I'm not an old man here. We're talking. We love Jack one no matter what. I had that I-Pace for three, four weeks. Joey, take it. Why don't you drive it? Blah, 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 blah. I loved it. I, it, it was so great. Now, I had a black with a, a, a white cream interior with real wood on the dash again. And they just hit all the buttons. Now, was the sticker eighty-five, ninety thousand American dollars? But they really put a hundred and thirty into the car. Yeah, but that's what they have to do to get people into them, you know, until we evolve. But here's what bothers me. Okay, we've got gasoline for four or five hundred years. I love the I pace. I love electric cars. I love it. I, I'm not fighting anything. But where do we get these minerals? And the materials to make these things run, I, I think we dig so much out of the earth, we'd fall out of the stratosphere. We'd be hitting the sun. We'd lose so much weight taking it out of the earth. Okay? And then you go, well, what do you do with those batteries in 10 years? And that's, you know, when you get older, you start saying, hey, you know, what is the end game here? You know? And I'm in New York. And there's billions of people here. Look. There isn't a plug from my house to New York City. And, and, you know, there's 3 million people in Nassau County. There's 8 million people in Manhattan. How do you go 100 miles, you know, and not have a charge? We get it. The I-Pace today is a Model T Mm. 100 years ago. Okay? That's where we are. And it's going to turn into a Model A, then a V8, and then eventually into, you know, a Mercomatic Mercury with an automatic transmission and radio. But it's going to take time. But New York, they just said yesterday they want to, you cannot buy or sell a gasoline car in 14 years. Now, you know that's impossible, and you're just egging things on. So like you said, if you're educated and you put it all together, man, it, it could really work out. They, look, Jaguar's got a good idea that maybe I'm hearing. Still build a gasoline SUV or whatever. The technology's not there yet. And then build an electric one next to it. The kid buys the electric for the future. The old man buys the gasoline. And you're still in the Jaguar family. Am I starting to sound more like John Egan now? <laughs> well, I mean, you know, ultimately, electric vehicles, that's fine. But if we are all to have brand new electric vehicles every two or three years, actually, we're not solving any problems. It's consumerism, it's consumption that's really it's really driving all of these problems. So actually, if we continue to use those vehicles that have already been built 
if we continue to use them in a more green and sustainable way, that has to be the answer. And let's not write off other technologies coming here, hydrogen, uh, biofuels, uh, alternative fuels. Um, you know, there's all sorts of technology going into um, basically uh, man-made uh, petrol at the moment, and Porsche are leading the development on that. There are other ways forward here than just putting our consumerism and consumption into just another medium, surely. Well, what's nice, look, it's good we're even talking about this, like I said before. MG, Triumph, Stag, you know, uh, other Rover groups, they're all gone. It's nice that you and I could still have this conversation, belong to a club, the JEC, which I'm a lifetime member. I mean, what are there, 6,000 members in the club? 15,000 were on these days. Yeah, huge, huge community, right. and even more across the various chapters right. across the world. So we're a big we're a big force, I reckon. Right. So when you take, look, like my, my parents, my grandparents even, look, they were the Model A generation, right? World War II, Model A. We had the greatest time with those Model As. Uh, you can't give them away now because that generation's gone. And yeah, there's a couple around, but it's not the same camaraderie. It's not the same fun. You know, it's 90 years ago. There's nobody, there are one or two people, but th there's no, hey, I remember this, I remember that. And then it fades away. And then plus the technology. And if you have the patience to deal with it, there, there, there's equivalent cars probably in Austin or something, you know, in England. But, but that's why like these Jags are timeless. I got a call the other day. Somebody bought my 66 ready type uh, convertible. It was a bespoke car where everything was modernized, custom, but it looked factory, you know, but upgrade electronic ignition, all the other stuff. This guy calls me up, tremendous collection in the Midwest, makes a lot of money. He's got 100 cars, okay? And he's an American car, car guy in his early 70s. And he goes, I never had a Jaguar in my life. I picked up this Jaguar from you. You know, it was through a dealer. I owned it, okay, years ago. And he goes, Joe, this car is so ahead of its time. I took my wife for a 200-mile drive in a 50-year-old car, and it felt like, you know, it was 10 years old. And I said, independent brakes, uh, inboard brakes, four-wheel disc brakes, synchro transmission, a radio. It's a wonderful thing. And, and it's just Jaguar was so ahead of its time. I just hope I see... I'm hearing good things all of a sudden in this four-year gap we're waiting for 25, you know, because they're taking a break now to, to build the new, you know, the, the, the new uh, cars that are coming up. Hopefully there's going to be something real exciting coming out, you know, in 2025, you know, and put them, put them on the cutting edge again. So, you know, this is a good conversation. We're not talking about 100 years ago all the time. We're talking about today, and we're having fun in the meantime. And making fun of each other, which is good. Everybody's got to laugh today. <laughs> well, know? of course, what we need is the what I like to refer to in car manufacturing terms as the gateway drug, right? And it's the car that gets young people or new generations or new audiences into a car brand. It's their route in. They come in and go, oh, I didn't know about x or i didn't know about y and that's e types or xjs's or series 3 xj6's and perhaps that's what jaguar needs now the f type has done brilliantly but it needs that other exciting moment where everyone sits up and goes oh i wish i had a jaguar and kids start putting it on bedroom walls again that's what we're after from jaguar i think isn't it look like i told you when i was a kid the little red jaguar went across the screen 
on Speed Racer, and you thought it was a spaceship. And they obviously did that, that the next scene was a spaceship, okay? Let me go back to 95. 1995, I'm in my 30s, married, two kids, they're in school, little kids, got a business, got mortgages, my in-laws move in, my father-in-law is sick, the whole thing, you know, doing the right so I get the I get the call from Mike Dale and some other people. You got to go for this new XJ6. Joe, you're the guy. You know, you're a wrenching kind of guy, but you're a white collar business guy. You know, you're the best of both worlds. You could bridge the old guys that, you know, they break down and can't fix it and the new guys. Okay. And you're younger. So I'm, I'm in New York every day. It's freezing cold. It's the middle of winter. It's three o'clock. No snow. You know, three o'clock, it's pitch black in New York in the winter months, okay? So I'm coming home from work at 536 o'clock. Like the UK, it's bumper to bumper traffic, blah, 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 blah. I'm in my brand new XJ6, X300. I've got the glove box, not the real, real early ones with the cans. Okay, you know the whole story. I'm loving everything. Wooden dash, wooden steering. I ordered everything. How am I going to pay for this? I don't know. I got to keep working, right? Bumper to bumper traffic, day in, day out. I get tapped from behind. I mean, it's dead traffic. You know how it is. It's like the uh, London. I get tapped from be- a tap. So you know me. I'm from New York. As you can tell, I'm a little excitable. <laughs> I get out of the car. It's pitch black. And I'm thinking in my head, because you were talking about this the other day. It's the first Jaguar with polyurethane bumpers. You know, you don't have the old bumpers with the chrome. And I'm going to have a, a scratch. You know, I'm young. This is what I have to worry about. Okay. I get out of the car. I'm in my long trench coat for reasons obvious being in New York. You have to conceal. I'm going back to go to this car to see who is this person that tapped his car that were in bumper to bumper that what are you doing? Okay. I go to see the guy in the back and there's this blonde with big Alaskan blue eyes. And I go, I was going to choke her. And then I go, what are you doing? She goes, aren't you the guy? Now, this is why I'm trying to bring in the young guys. Aren't you the guy that used to have like an older Jag? And then you got this one. Yeah, I just traded it in. Well, I've been following you every day in the same path when I come to work. I go, you're following? Yeah, you know, I I had the same route. She goes, I love that car. Well, I go, why did you tap the car? Well, I wanted to give you my phone number in case you wanted to go out. Now, that would never happen in a Mercedes-Benz. That would never happen in Alexis. Now, I'm married now 35 years, so we can embellish the story. We eventually, you know, wrapped up the deal there one day at a beach one day. But the wind-up to the story was that would never happen in any other car but a Jag. And that's all you hear. Now, I was ready to choke this person, okay? It's 30 years ago, 25 years ago, so we're past all the law. But first of all, she's beautiful. Second of all, she understood it was a jag. You got me? Mm. And, and she was a young woman. You know, she was in her late 20s, early 30s. Of course, I'm married and I had that look in my eye with two kids at home and my mother-in-law. You know, but <laughs> but that would never happen unless you were in a jag. And then when I took over as president, that's the stories you heard all the time. Crazy stuff like that. Like what Lorraine talks about when she drives around the old car. When I look at Lorraine. Oh, I look at the car. Okay, but at least I'm here. I'm having fun. You know, you never hear. Did you ever hear that story in a Porsche 911? No, it's always boring. I could beat you out at the track by one one hundredth of a second. I don't care. 
What do I care about that? I'm listening to beautiful music, looking at the picnic table on the dashboard, and my blood pressure went down 50 points. Now, isn't that a great story? That's a brilliant story. And I think if anyone's joined us on this podcast series for the first time, perhaps because we featured the young Jaguar Enthusiast Club leader, Scarlett, on the last episode, perhaps you're here wondering why I should buy a Jag. Joey's just giving you the reason. That's all you need to know. Get yourself one right now. We've sold it to him. We've done it. (laughs) There you go. Now, listen to me. I'm telling you, it's a lifetime adventure. You buy it, it never goes away. I've had guys that... You know, had cars, X, you know, 40s, X300s, 308s. You know what I'm talking about. Most of the guys on here. Even if the car gets totaled, even if they get wrecked, they always take the leaper off the hood. Or they take the shift knob out, you know, the wooden shift knob. And they put it on their desk or in their room. It never goes away like another car where you just go, ah, I had that car. You always have something, and it <laughs> always sparks conversation. Now. Before I go, because I'm talking too long. 20 years ago tomorrow, I made sure you called me today. I mean, we've been friends for all these years. I don't know why you waited 61 episodes to call, <laughs> but now you call me. 20 years ago tomorrow, between friends, family, and clients, I've owned an insurance company that I got bought out. I lost 26 guys 20 years ago tomorrow. So as 20 years go by after September 11th, you look at it different as you get older, and uh, you smile and you enjoy every day. I'm just wishing uh, that Jaguar comes out with something for a new generation and for us so we could move on. But it's good you call, but never forget tomorrow, my friend. Never forget that day. And I'm done. Anything else you want to talk about? <laughs> it's great words, and I think that just about uh, sums it up nicely for us, Joey. Thank you so much for joining us here on the Jag Enthusiast Club My podcast. My friend, anytime. When I get back to the UK, we'll see which shows we do. Maybe Goodwood, Classic Lamar. Maybe we get together. How about that? We will be on the beers, I promise you. I promise you that. You got it, man. And by the way, I love Richard West. He's my age. He's rambling at this stage, you know, talking about the past. But I love him. Tell me he looks good. I want to know one thing. That pompadour of his in the promo picture, is that his real hair? <laughs> it is. It is. It is. You can tug yeah, it. It doesn't come off. <laughs> yeah, okay. Good. All right. See how we're laughing? That's the way we got to start a new year after tomorrow. Absolutely. I love you, my friend. And you, Keep Jerry. Touch. Thanks for joining us. Anything you need, call, call, call. Will okay? do. Thank you. Thank you, baby. Enjoy. <laughs> well, GT Joey is known for his books and his videos, all of which he does to raise money for the homeless veterans of Long Island. So uh, a really good cause and really good content as well. You can find out more via gtjoey.com. That's all for this episode of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. Don't forget to keep in touch with us here on the JC Podcast via www.jcpodcast.com. And you can get in touch with us very easily by using the voice recorder on there to leave us a message, or you can use the contact form if you prefer to write your messages. Don't forget, you can also join the Jaguar Enthusiast Club online by clicking the Join Today button on the top right-hand corner of the podcast page to enjoy all the benefits, plus the fantastic, glossy, 130-page monthly magazine that's all included in your membership of the worldwide Jaguar family that is the JEC. This is the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Subscribe for new episodes at jecpodcast.com.